The Progress Report is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. A pod on the network that I want to highlight is the latest from the Alberta Advantage. Journalist Lee Phillips joins the team to examine the low-key, super-important topic of industrial policy. And I'm about halfway through this pod right now, and, and this is something that the Alberta Advantage is great at. They take something that, you know, I've never really thought too much about, and which actually kind of sounds super boring, uh, in industrial policy, and actually turns it into an excellent podcast where I learn about how the world works and how Alberta works, how Canada works. And that's the kind of content you get on Harbinger. So I'd encourage you to go become a supporter of Harbinger today. You'll not only get exclusive supporter-only content, but you get to feel good about yourself about supporting a network that supports this kind of content. Easiest way to do that is go to harbingermedianetwork.com, but I don't want to take too long. Let's get to the show. Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney, recording today here in Amiskwichiwaskaigan, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 territory on the banks of the Kasiskasawanisipi, or the North Saskatchewan River. Joining us today on the pod are uh, Najib Jutt, a political strategist with Statecraft, and Nisha Patel, the now just like literally former poet laureate, like the ceremony to appoint the new poet laureate like just happened before the pod. Is that right, Nisha? That is correct. The now, yeah, the now former poet laureate of Edmonton, to talk about Winston Churchill, uh, specifically the recent vandalization of his statue, as well as uh, his incredibly sordid, murderous, and genocidal past, and uh, discussing why so much stuff is named after this guy. So um, I'll give a bit of the context, and then I think we can kind of dive into it. But just last week, on June 17th, it was discovered at the Winston Churchill statue in downtown Edmonton, just directly adjacent to Winston Churchill Square, had been given a new, and to my mind, a very interesting and correct artistic interpretation uh, of being covered with a proper sloshing of red paint. Uh, Nisha, I know you did a bunch of media on this day and you were talking about it on Twitter. What, what went through your head? How did you feel when you kind of first saw the pictures? You know, my instinct is just to be happy that people who are frustrated have a way to take out their frustrations and show why they're frustrated or what they're angry about. I think that we don't hold enough space for anger in any sort of political discourse. Um, And that if people are resorting to throwing paint on statues, we should let them because it's telling us something that we didn't know before and that we haven't made space for. And Najib, what was going through your head when you saw those photos as well? Well, most of all, uh, it's about time. You know, I've been kind of on this bandwagon for a while now. And, you know, and, and as much as, um, you know, I appreciate the conversations around Grandin and Oliver and, and the Edmonton Eskimos, you know, here's a, here's a man who was known for his genocidal tendencies. We, we've erected a statue to, named a public square after, named an LRT station after right in the heart of our city. So again, you know, I think it, it's about time we started having that conversation. And, you know, as Nisha said, it's, we shouldn't focus on the fact, like we saw many politicians, that this is vandalism or, or uh, you know, the idea of law and order. But why does it need to get to a point where people's frustrations have to, have to result in action like this to just get a conversation going to get someone to pay attention? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I thought it looked pretty fucking cool, to be honest. And uh, <laughs> I, I think now more people than before 
are aware of the crimes that Winston Churchill has committed. Like vandalism works, folks. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the, the media, by splashing a bunch of red paint on Winston Churchill, the media was forced to talk about why someone yep. might want to splash a bunch of red paint on a statue of Winston Churchill. And that leads us into, oh, go ahead, Nisha. Yeah, I just, you know, Churchill is someone who's lauded with like starting democracy or whatever, or, you know, really being a big proponent of it. But I think what we did uh, in in accepting that, like, you know, the democratic way is the way forward is really leave out other forms of communicating with with systems of power, right? If you have a system of power that disenfranchises others, there's obviously going to be ways that we engage with them that are outside of the system's intentions, right? And so like for Churchill to be up on his high horse and say like, oh, like democracy is the greatest thing to ever happen to the Western world was a way to delegitimize like systems that he didn't like, right? Responses that he didn't like. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we put up a statue of a man who used violence to solve his problems and then wonder why people may act violently uh, towards him. Yeah, or just might even mad about it. I mean, I don't think property damage is violence, but like the, you know, Churchill is not just some like drunk racist uncle figure. You know what I mean? Like he was a mass murderer. And that is why someone might want to splash red paint on a statue of him. Like to see someone like Churchill, and we're going to get into it, the details of his atrocity shortly, but like that, that's why, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, and if it takes splashing some red paint on a statue to start having that conversation about oh, how this guy was a mass murderer and a genocide and like did incredible, terrible things in the name of British empire. Let's, let's have that conversation. And so I, uh, I left this part purposely open. I mean, where do you want to start when it comes to Winston Churchill's atrocities? You know, it's, it's such a long list. And <laughs> for me, as like a poet, language is the thing that comes up first, right? The language of the violence, you know, not even looking at the acts. The things that he said were just, you know, by our standards today and even standards back then, quite horrible um, and the audiences mattered too. Who was it that he was speaking to? What kind of whiteness was he speaking to? You know, and what folks in power were the ones listening to the things he said? Yeah, I mean, do you have any uh, any any particular language? I mean, the, the quotes are like <laughs> again, he was a, a racist even for his time, and like yeah, there's exactly. no shortage no shortage of like terrible things that he said, right? For sure. And I think like when he, like I'm from a South Asian background and he called Indian people a beastly people, you know, and I'm like, there is no kind way to say beastly, in my opinion. Right. And, you know, Churchill died while my parents were still alive. Like this isn't some ancient, you know, 200 year old history. Like this is one generation removed from my life. The 40s and 50s is literally not that long ago. Najib, what 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 a particular Winston Churchill atrocity or crime kind of jumps out at you that you want to start off with? Oh, again, you know, the list is endless, you know, in, in Mau uh, uh, Mau, Kenya, you know, forcing 150,000 people into concentration camps, chemical warfare in Iraq against the Kurds and the Afghans, um, the famine in India that we all know about. I mean, the, Linda's, the, the list is endless. And, you know, and, and his defenders will say, you know, these are all things that, you know, you do in times of war. But Churchill was on another level in terms of his white supremacy. 
you know, which is where all the language speaks to. Uh, and, you know, he believed in white supremacy. He believed in eugenics. He believed in hierarchy of race and that white Protestants were on the top of that hierarchy, you know, and that, you know, they were the people that will best bring civilization to different countries and different cultures. Um, you know, his quote exactly was, the Aryan stock is bound to triumph. Um, to which, you know, some historians have credited him as, you know, being not that different from Hitler and his views on, on white supremacy. No, I mean, everything that Churchill did was in service of the British Empire. And and I why I think it's useful to examine, you know, Winston Churchill's crimes and his atrocities is that you really just have like a handy list of the past, you know, 100 years of the crimes that the British Empire committed, right? And he from a very early age was an enthusiastic progenitor of empire. And like as a 23 year old, Winston Churchill went to uh, what is now the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan and took part in um, uh, essentially like a punitive expedition. Like the, the rebels, there was a rebellion in the area and the British empire had dispatched, you know, some army units to go Mm -hmm. put it down and this was really the first taste that he got of kind of war and the empire in action. And this was like a, you know, something that the British empire was very experienced at, right. Uh, especially in Asia was like putting down um, these, these rebellions brutally with via brutal violence. And he viewed from a young age, Churchill viewed war in service of the empire as a way for him to get noticed, as a way for him to win medals, as a way to essentially make his political bones. And he was an incredible, yeah, he was an incredible opportunist. You know, his political ambition was, I think, almost unrivaled for for folks at his time. And some of his ideas came from people who are unnamed, um, people who will not be given a place in history. And other ones were ones that he carried out or promoted in order to further his own goals of being someone who would be lauded as like some sort of savior, right? And these are the kind of behaviors that feed into the most toxic and like nastiest parts of politics, right? We This is not an everyman. This is not an everyday politician who was out, you know, on Oxford Street shaking hands. This is a man who wanted power and did everything he could to keep it and to gain it. Yeah, like here's Churchill, you know, writing about his time in Afghanistan as a 23-year-old. We quote, we proceeded systematically village by village and we destroyed the houses, filled up the wells, blew down the towers, cut down the great shady trees, burned the crops and broke the reservoirs in punitive devastation. Again, this is, you know, your, your, your crimes of the British empire, just Winston Churchill cataloging (laughs) them, but it wasn't just, uh, empire, uh, that Winston Churchill was a fan of. Uh, he was also no fan of working people. Um, and like, in the UK, he was the Home Secretary in 1910 and 1911 uh, when Tony Pandy and Linelli happened, which were kind of two large-scale strikes where Winston Churchill, as Home Secretary, sent in the military and, like, people died. Like, regular working-ass people, coal miners or people who were uh, attached to this strike at the railway station. And, uh, you know, like, when you go down Churchill's resume, he was an enthusiastic um uh, user of violence, whether it was at home or abroad. And I- anyone who got in his way, he was happy to use, you know, the military. Uh, in the case of Ireland, he was happy to send in like 
a murderous gang of of ten thousand former World War One British soldiers called the Black and Tans to essentially like pogrom Irish Catholics and to like do mass rapes and targeted killings of Irish Catholics, uh, both Republicans and civilians. Um, you know, starting in nineteen twenty, that lasted for two whole years. You know, like mm-hmm. I think a lot of people forget that kind of terrorism he inflicted on folks that were white as well you know like this was not a man who just hated people of color this was a man who hated everyone who wasn't british who wasn't white and british you know like we and who wasn't an aristocrat and british right (laughs) yeah exactly like this was truly someone who should have been the enemy of all people just wasn't just a racist a classist as well yeah an enthusiastic progenitor of class warfare right yeah and we're going to get to the, the the Bengali famine in a bit more detail on it, but I've got to go down his 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 resume, his CV of atrocities. And you brought it up already, Najib, what happened in Kenya with the Mau Mau Rebellion. He was, he was prime minister between 1951 and 55 before he became ill and died, I think, shortly after. And to be fair to Winston Churchill, uh, the, the, uh, the Mau Mau Rebellion and the response to it by the British, by the government at the time, was a, it was a bipartisan consensus. The Labour Party and, and the Tories were, uh, were very happy to, to do what they did in Kenya and really is the kind of like last big brutal colonial hurrah of of the british empire but yeah like do you do you have the the details on this yeah i i just think that you know there's so much in history that has been written down about these things like these are not things that are up for discussion or consideration like these are actual proven events that happened you know from people that that knew him you know and and some of their descendants are still alive today. And some of the people who were alive during Churchill's, especially last year's, are alive today, who can like testify to the truth of these things. And also, you know, I think it's important that people realize that these types of tactics that the British used, um, you know, as they built the empire, you know, still go on today, right? And other other militaries have learned and used these tactics and continue to use them, right? So that's another um, leftover from from Churchill's legacy, right, is that he, these scorched earth tactics that they used all over the world, you know, where, the, you know, their belief was that if they had to retreat from anywhere the, to make sure that that country, that civilization never has, knows peace again, you know, which explains what they did with Kashmir and East and West Pakistan and all of this uh, during partition. Um, so, you know, these tactics are used today too by the Americans, by other, by other militaries as well. Yeah, you said 150,000 people were, were rounded up in the Mau Mau Rebellion, put in concentration camps. I've seen numbers uh, higher than 300,000. I think that number might might be um, underestimated. And it was it was essentially ethnic cleansing, right? Like the British army showed up, rounded these people up, forcibly displaced them from their lands, put them in concentration camps, tortured their the leaders, murdered a whole lot of them. Uh, you know, there's a book written on this by a, a historian named Carolyn Elkins called Britain's Gulag. And like the quotes, like what she wrote about, because there was like a, lo- a recent lawsuit, because again, this is recent. This is the 50s, right? Like Queen Elizabeth was the queen when this was happening. <laughs> and it, it, here's a quote from that book. Quote, I've come to believe that during the Mau Mau War, British forces wielded their authority with a savagery that betrayed a perverse colonial logic. Only by detaining nearly the entire Kikuyu population of 1.5 million people and physically and psychologically atomizing its men, women, and children could colonial authority be restored and the civilizing mission reinstated. 
After nearly a decade of oral and archival research, this author Elkins had uncovered a murderous campaign to eliminate Kikuyu people, a campaign that left tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands dead. Yeah, and so, you know, why does this sound familiar, right? How is it any different than what's being done to the Uyghur Muslims in China or what's being done in Palestine or what's being done in the U.S. with kids in cages, right? So this is like, you know, standard uh, military operating procedure that, uh, you know, was done back in Churchill's time today. And now we, you know, we look at it, you know, we look at it as inhumane uh, and psychological torture um, and physical torture, you know, so I don't, I, you know, there's no reason why we should be letting Churchill off the hook for these, for these acts. Exactly. And there's one final atrocity I want to bring up before Bengal that, that I think also betrays like who he was uh, kind of fundamentally, which is that uh, what, what happened in, in uh, Greece kind of post-World War II after the Nazis had been driven out uh, in 1994 on Churchill's orders, British troops shot dead 28 Greeks and injured another 124. And those Greek people had been shot dead by British troops uh, because uh, they were anti-fascists, essentially. They were communists. They had driven off the Nazis from uh, their land that they lived. And Churchill wanted to reinstall kind of the right-wing government and the monarchy of Greece. And uh, the people who had written off who had uh, written off the Nazis into the sunset weren't super keen on that. There was 200,000 people in the streets after the Brits demanded um, that the guerrilla groups responsible for this victory kind of disarm. And that's when Churchill ordered British troops to turn their guns on the, on the, on the Greek people. And again, this is a deep fundamental part of his ideology, which was anti-communism. Right. And, and, uh, and, and in a case of history repeating itself, Churchill ended up installing a veteran of the, uh, the Irish atrocities that were perpetrated in the twenties to train the uh, new Greek security forces and to uh, route out communism in Greece. Yeah, and uh, I, I think, like, again, these are publicly available facts and things that we know have really happened and that we've had the benefit of researching and that people have poured money into verifying the truth of, you know, and as long as we have these documents available, I think it's understandable today that we know that history does affect the generations that are alive now, that it isn't some forgotten thing. We don't just let people, you know, exist in our memories to the the fullest extent of their their good qualities, but that we do take into account the complicated and nasty bits as well, and that people are allowed to be angry about it. Because if anything, you know, colonial impacts are ongoing. We know that. We we have proof of that. Even if people invented the word post-colonial, I don't really think it's been something that's been in practice for for very long. Yeah, I mean, it's so important that both sides of history are always taught and uh, and made aware of. And this is the problem with having statues and schools and streets named after, you know, these so-called great men is that rarely is the other side of uh, of the of the history taught uh, and learned, right? So this is why, you know, why we have this argument that these statues and, and memorials, they belong in museums with, a, with an accurate accounting, not a whitewashed, sanitized accounting that we get uh, when we just uh, when we just put up um, these uh, these dedications, these memorials to to these people, and the final atrocity, and and the one that should uh, I mean all of that should should disqualify Winston Churchill from having a statue in a square named after him. But like in 1943 in Bengal, what is now um, the state of West Bengal in India and Bangladesh, 
two to three million people, Bengalis, two to three million Bengalis died as a result of Winston Churchill's decisions and policies. The famine that happened at that time was not a result of a drought. They've, the scientists have gone and back and looked at historical soil samples and they've confirmed that uh, this was not in fact a natural disaster. This was a man-made political disaster. Rice was still being exported from India during this famine. Uh, you know, Australia and Britta and Canada and the United States all offered to send rice and wheat to Bengal during the famine and Churchill refused. The Viceroy of India said that Churchill's attitude towards, said, quote, Churchill's attitude towards India and the famine is negligent, hostile, and contemptuous. Even Leo Amory, who was the British Secretary of State in India at the time, said, quote, he didn't see much difference between Churchill's outlook and Hitler's. To speak to your point, Najib, like, this is who we have a statue of here in Edmonton. Yeah, you know, and, and it's so disappointing when we see politicians, you know, jump on an incident like this one and just talk about the law and order aspect and not actually engage in these conversations, right? I mean, we just had a, a, a statue of John A. Macdonald removed in Kingston, Ontario, because there was a protest from Indigenous people there who did a sit-in until it was removed, right? And, you know, it's just it's so unfortunate that, you know, when we have politicians and leaders just to jump to defend uh, and to uh, um, you know, try to try to um, reframe the conversation rather than actually say, "Hey, you know, let's have uh, let's have uh, let's have this conversation and let's figure out what you know everybody's upset about and what these." And I think that's the biggest part of it is that we downplay the psychological impact to the people that were uh, oppressed or, or marginalized by these men and their and and their ancestors um, who were uh, who were the um, the people that were on the other end of the actions of, of someone like Churchill right you know when you see this and this is why you know it upsets me and I'm sure why it upsets Nisha because we're both South Asian and we know what happened in India and yeah and, yeah, and to your point of numbers right you know like who knows what the real numbers were I've heard you know, much higher numbers for the Bengal fam- famine as well as well right you know we can't even get numbers right during a pandemic in the modern world you know, who knows what numbers really were. And they usually are downplayed in the in the deaths of um, in, in these atrocities that happened in history. It's not just the stories of people who look like me that matter. It's people who were historically and still are marginalized who continue to face the violence um, espoused by, by Churchill and his followers, you know, which, you know, include me and, and the hate mail that I've been receiving for speaking out against historical violence, you know, um, it becomes an ongoing violence. And we have to be aware of the role that these advocates are playing, that they're putting themselves on the line, more so than even I am, right, being out there, protesting statues, doing the sit-ins, blocking pipelines, like these are people who have had everything taken away and are still fighting for the good of everyone around them, whether those people recognize it or not. It reverberates to modern times, right? I mean, his point, his views on Palestine, you know, reverberate to modern times. You know, he believed and said that Arabs were a lower manifestation and that, you know, people could choose which civilization they prefer. I mean, that's like the rallying cry of colonizers, you know, <laughs> throughout history, right? Is that, you know, the, 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 the oppressor is the one that's bringing civilization um, and the, the indigenous people are the ones who are backwards. Yeah, and I think, I think you brought up a good point 
there, Najibo, the like the political reaction to this, like what the what we saw from figures like Jason Kenny and John Zadek and um, Michael Walters, uh, hilariously, was this like you know a pearl clutch pearl clutching about you know this sacred artifact being defaced and like at the very most you know you get a nod to you know Winston Churchill had a complicated legacy, but like. <laughs> Uh, come on. <laughs> I don't know if I have a good one. You know, I, I, like... I think, I think it's tough. I, I used to dream of being in politics. Like I worked in um, municipal government for three years and it's so funny because if you had told me that, you know, I would get more traction with political leaders as a poet than as a political analyst and advisor, I would have laughed. I would never have believed you. And now what's happening is that these same people are, I feel I feel for them to some extent because some of them are stuck in these positions where they've been told that they can have an influence and instead they spend their time defending people who don't need defending. They compare hate crimes um, to splashing paint on a racist statue. And I just, I don't want to live like that. And I'm glad that I left that world behind because I can sleep easy at night knowing that I'm doing the right thing. And I can't say that every politician I know does that. Yeah, you know, and this is the amazing thing to me as a political analyst and strategist that politicians are having such a hard time getting on the right side of these conversations, right? I mean, since the murder of George Floyd, I mean, you must understand that the public sentiment has changed, right? That's why you can have honest conversations about Palestine now and still retain your seat, as we've seen politicians all over the U.S. Uh, do, right? It's people want more honest conversations. People want to have the hard conversations. And these politicians just don't seem to get it, right? They, they, they still seem to want to straight, uh, straddle that line. Uh, and, you know, and, and I think what's really at the heart of it is so many of these uh, politicians, and let's, uh, let's face it, by and large, they're white men, you know, have lived on these legacies of John A. MacDonald and grew up on these legacy and Winston Churchill and admired them, you know, and see themselves also, you know, framed this way and, and don't want their legacies also to be uh, besmirched, you know, after, after, they're, after they're retired or after they've passed on. But I just feel like there's so much also trauma for these men as well as their heroes are now subject to scrutiny. Yeah, and not just scrutiny, but uh, I mean, the, the funniest part about these politicians pissing their pants about a bit of paint on a statue was these same politicians then trying to compare it to drawing a, a swastika on, I forget if it was a mosque or um, a mosque, synagogue. Yeah. Mosque. Uh, yeah, and and it's like, no, those are in no no way equivalent. Uh, and and you <laughs> making that comparison is incredibly offensive to all of the people who are very rightfully not a big fan of Winston fucking Churchill. Oh yeah. It's a, you know, when I read that, I was just like, Holy fuck. Like how dissolute deluded do you have to be to make that comparison, you know, and trying to, you know, and I know in his mind, he was thinking, saying like, you know, both are terrible acts, but dude, come on, man. A family just got mowed down, you know, for, for their faith, you know, a week ago, you know, we have women every day seems like being attacked, Muslim women, visibly Muslim women on the street in this city being attacked to say something like that just shows how 
deluded um, some of these politicians are. There is no comparison. I, the comparison in his mind was that, oh, if it wasn't for Churchill, we'd have swastikas everywhere. What a ridiculous, out-of-touch comparison to make. Yeah, if it wasn't for Churchill, we'd all be speaking German. Remember that, yeah, folks. Yeah, uh, right. One of, one, of my, <laughs> one of my favorite and but stupid. Let's not. Let, let, yeah, let, let's not forget. You know, like this. This you know, attribute attribution to to Churchill as having won the war against the Nazis. Right. I'm pretty sure that other people, including Stalin, would have something to say about that. The other European allies would have something to say about that. The Americans would have something to say by that. You know. Uh, some historians believe that, you know, even without Churchill, we'd still win. Like, it's it's ridiculous to think that one man turned the tide of history and ensured the democracy we enjoy today, right? It's ridiculous. It's a real straw man argument, right? Like, I, I was a competitive debater for eight years, and this is the kind of unwinnable argument that would be completely dismissed by any anyone who gives it any thought because, like, you're literally basing it off an idea, right? An idea that is unproven. Whereas what we know from history is that this was like an allied effort. There were tons of people and Churchill was desperate to hold on to his spot because someone would have replaced him, right? Like we can't say for sure what actions would and wouldn't have happened, but, you know, like based on history alone, you know, it's not a viable and tenable intellectual position to be like a single man stopped, you know, the entire movement of Nazism, right? The entire movement of fascism. And also we know that it wasn't stopped, right? That in Germany, for instance, they had to put in extensive, you know, elementary, junior high, senior high level educational campaigns just to counter things like anti-Semitism, right? Like these are ongoing conversations and efforts. And we didn't see any of those things happen here to prevent it from happening again. So like Churchill might have, you know, been lauded as winning a war, but he definitely wasn't the only person who contributed to a war effort. And also like the premise that winning wars always makes you the good guy is totally false. Yeah, not to mention the millions of soldiers and innocent people that gave their lives and minimizing their sacrifice. Churchill didn't really, I mean, he expressed an admiration for Hitler in 1935. He said, quote, he uh, he admired his, uh, quote, the courage, the perseverance and the vital force which enabled him to overcome all the resistances which barred his path. Like, you know, Churchill may not have liked his persecution of Jews, but he definitely liked uh, the fact that he was an anti-communist <laughs> and and Churchill was far more worried about communism than he was about fascism and Nazism. It exactly. Was only, right. He it was, was, it was um, yeah, he 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 fought against a lot of these things that inspired, you know, modern day labor movements and stuff like that. Churchill was against all of that, you know, and to defeat an enemy that you yourself propped up and like have some sort of denialism about what you did when it's literally in recorded history is like a new level of delusional leadership. Yeah. It was only when fascism and Nazism became a threat to the British empire. Did defeating fascism and Nazism become a higher priority than crushing communism, you know, for Churchill. He was, he was an arch conservative uh, imperialist. Churchill was fine with appeasement and giving in to, um, you know, the, the initial demands of Nazi Germany, just like most of the British ruling class was because they thought they were gearing up for not a fight against the Nazis, but a fight against Stalin's Russia. And, 
and like you can see it in his actions, right? Like he signed a, a peace treaty with uh, fascist Spain that, that survived, I think, until Franco's death. Uh, funnily enough, they you know the British and the Americans did not give a shit about the Spanish Civil War and and you know uh, and let the communists and anarchists you know get slaughtered by um, you know the the Franco's uh, army that was supported by fascist Italy and Nazi Germany. Like you, you you just have to go back and read some history books to find out that Churchill was not a good guy. But we still have people like Jason Kenney and Michael Walters and John Zadek, these city councilors in Edmonton who get up on their hind legs and, and defend this guy. Yeah. And that's the context we should be looking at, you know, not just Churchill, but all of these, you know, warmongers through, right. Is that, what is it that they were trying to protect and what did they, you know, what did they do at the altar of that, that sacrifice? Right. And for Churchill it's very simple. He was protecting the British empire. And whenever anything uh, encroached on that as that's when he, you know, went to war and committed his, uh, committed his atrocities. Right. Uh, other than that, he was very accepting of a lot of things that we wouldn't accept today. Yeah. And there's, there's a, a character that has sprung out, uh, into the public's eye, uh, as a result of this, uh, this artistic, uh, reimagining of the Churchill statue. And apparently you'd had a bit of a relationship with it before. I was only dimly aware of it, but the Winston Churchill Society is a thing that exists and they will provide quotes to the media saying that Churchill was great. And I, I went a bit down the rabbit hole on this organization and like they have posts, like they're one, they're incredible posters, like their blog kind of goes back and takes every criticism of, Chur- of Churchill that has like kind of ever been made. And then I'm like, nah, it's not real. It didn't happen. <laughs> but like uh, the fun fun fact about the the Winston Churchill Society is that Mark Milk, the uh, one of the head honchos of the War Room, is also the president of the Winston Churchill Society. So just a fun little Alberta politics crossover with uh, with that. Uh, I know you had a, a run in with the Winston Churchill Society of Edmonton in the past, Misha. What what happened there? Yeah, you know. Um... I can't say for sure that it was the Churchill Society that sent me hate mail, but I did get a very nasty email from a woman who cited only their website as proof that Churchill was a great man, who applauded the fact that my term was coming to an end as Pope Laureate, that I was soapboxing because apparently having an opinion on an untouchable war hero is soapboxing, but her sending this hateful email is not. Um, And honestly, like, this is kind of par for the course. Every time I do a poem where I speak out about something, you know, people have an opinion on what poetry is supposed to be, as if they didn't turn to art during their entire pandemic, right, and rely on artists to keep them satisfied, happy from depression and entertained, right? Like women like Brenda from the Churchill Society, if you're listening, like, I can't believe you don't have better things to do than defend racists in your spare time. It's important to note that there's a Churchill Society in both Edmonton and in Calgary, and Calgary still plans on putting up a Churchill statue, I think, next year, I think, is their plan to put it up. They, I think they were planning earlier, but then because of the protests, they they decided to, to push it until um, 2022. Ah, Calgary's next uh, gender-neutral, universally available public bathroom then. Fantastic. <laughs> um. I know you uh, pay attention to the media as part of your job a lot. What what kind of jumped out at you about the the media coverage of of this event, Najib? Well, you know, it was one sided at the beginning, right? Which I, I you know I find 
stupefying actually like how you know you can only go out and and quickly go to print with only one side of the conversation i mean even if you couldn't find people to speak on the other side you can do your own research you know as to your comment right it was the cbc article that first mentioned any atrocities committed by churchill otherwise there were only um you know things uh quoted from the churchill society which of course they're gonna they're going to only say uh, only say good things and defend you know this kinds of you know as this as nisha mentioned straw man arguments are just you know to me like just hilarious right like you know the same arguments you and i've seen all over social media whenever we post anything duncan is you know like oh well what about gandhi you know gandhi was a racist come on like how many people did gandhi kill how many soldiers and troops did gandhi command you know what I mean? Like the biggest weapon that guy had was to to stop eating, you know, right? Like, you know, it's ridiculous. The kinds of things that people grasp at when they're when their heroes are threatened as, as arguments, right? You know, what we are trying to argue is that people, men in power, people in power that have these kinds of views, we should take a more critical look at them if we don't want this to continue. If we don't want to continue putting men and women in power that have these racist, colonist um white supremacist views. I think it's also important to note that like that argument that somehow we as South Asian people have our own representative heroes automatically assumes there is positionality and power imbalance between us and white people, that there is this line that they very clearly believe in and draw, um, you know, that defies complexity, that defies an understanding of holistically what a person did and what they knew and what they were bad for. People like Gandhi also shouldn't be made into statues, right? They had a different ethos than people today. And, you know, we there's fair criticism of both of these individuals, right? If we're going to do it on a balance of like who was more evil, I feel like that automatically assumes that there is a a person who is perfect, that there is someone who can be, you know, untouchable, that that should be the paragon of this kind of kindness or anti-war mentality or anything like that. And I just think that's wrong. I think we shouldn't treat anyone without that complexity, that we should, you know, look into histories. We should assume um, that everyone has committed harm. And for us as individuals who are still alive today to actively unlearn those behaviors and what we do and to actively make sure we're not harming um, within our ability to do so. Absolutely. I've, I've, I've joked before on social media that we'll trade one of ours for one of theirs. We'll just do a, a big trade across the world, one of our statues for one of theirs. Well, that's the thing about this statue. And I like I just think it's so funny. Our statue is not even original. It's actually a replica of a statue <laughs> somewhere else. Like the city bought a replica. It's like, and I've mentioned it, it's like going to the MoMA, getting a print of a Warhol um, and putting it up on your wall. Like that's what we did with this statue. We didn't even commission an original statue, you know? <laughs> so in terms of like artists and stuff, I would have felt pretty snubbed if I was a sculptor. Um, in Edmonton, and I was denied the opportunity to contribute to public art. So like, even that from like the artist perspective, you know, the statue shouldn't have gone up, it went through the entirely wrong process of going up. And what it represents is wrong, and it should be taken down. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when somebody mentioned this, oh, it's art, we have to remember that this is art. Well, you know, if it is art, then let's put it in an art gallery. And second of all, you know, someone commented, which I thought was hilarious, in one of my posts that you know, it's not art, it's a glorified garden ornament, uh, which I thought, <laughs> thought was hilarious because how many people even look at this statue, right? Or know the history that Nisha just uh, just mentioned. 
Yeah, I mean, it is kind of weirdly off to the side and in this kind of grove of trees. Like, like it's not like Winston Churchill's statue is in the middle of the square. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it is kind of this weird afterthought. And I think you make a good point, Nisha, about like, one, statues are, uh, yeah, you're always going to run into trouble. Like, no more statues, right? But I think that leads into the the next question is like, well, what do we do about the statue? And I'll, I'll put that to you, Nisha. Like, what do we do about the statue? What do we do about the square and the, all of the things that are named after this guy? You know, it was so funny because someone mentioned Tommy Banks and how Tommy Banks had said something along the lines of like, don't make me into a monument. Like, I don't want to be celebrated that way. And then we went and we named a street after him, you know, Tommy Banks Way, which is like also a really hard to get to street but it exists and people use it um and i just think like maybe we shouldn't build statues after after people maybe we shouldn't name squares after people you know um i'm a big fan of like the grid system in city planning with like numbers because i go to ontario and i don't know anywhere where i'm going right there's like streets named after things all the time uh in Sherwood Park, they name things after like birds and plants and like entire sections of community, uh, you know. And so there, there are options that we have here to honor things that don't necessarily exist in controversy. And I'm not saying that that's like the easy way out or that we should do that. I'm just saying like we knew that Churchill was this complicated figure who committed crimes and we named the square after him anyway so if we're making choices why not make new choices to counter white supremacy um, and acknowledge mistakes from the past yeah absolutely i mean even you know even if we didn't know at the time we know now so let's you know as is being done around the world let's rectify our mistake let's you know if it is a replica i think it probably should just be scrapped but you know if if it's so important then maybe let's put it in the museum put a, a real accounting of his history and his uh, his words uh, next to it you know at the end of the day statu- these statues and these memorials they they aren't historical artifacts right they don't teach history our schools should be teaching history where proper accounting has to be done in those textbooks as well um, but yeah, I mean, holding on to these things like somehow, you know, they're representative history and we're rewriting or revising history because we take them down is ridiculous. You know, we, like I said, you know, we've just taken down a John A. McDonald statue. This isn't the first time that um, Churchill's, you know, this has happened with Churchill's statue either. I mean, it happened during the summer last year in Britain where somebody wrote is a racist or was a racist on his statue in Halifax in our own country. We had a protest uh, on their Winston Churchill statue. They'd posted um, little post-it notes uh, about, with, with all of his quotes on it. Right. So, you know, this is a controversy that's continuing and, and hasn't just begun here in Edmonton, but I think what we're seeing around the world is like people are having these difficult conversations and really asking the question, as Nisha said, is do we need this? You know, at the end of the day, do we need streets and buildings named after these types of historical figures or any historical figures at all? And maybe we should be using, you know, things that make more sense, just like we did with renaming our wards, right? Which is how I got into the conversation with, with Michael Walters last year in the first place. I said, okay, great. We're renaming our ward to recognize Indigenous people and indigenous culture like why do we still have this statue sitting in the in the middle of our of our city you know of a man who said that he doesn't think that uh, indigenous people have a right to their land if more powerful worthy people come along um you know it's it doesn't make any sense at all yeah let's uh let's bring the statue down i think it's a it's a very reasonable uh action 
given everything that we've discussed, I'm glad we made the case for it. Uh, and Nisha, I think you make a great argument about um, names. I mean, I think it was named like Market Square or something before. I mean, that's a perfectly acceptable yeah, name for it. It was. <laughs> and it was one of the original markets in the city. The city market actually has its history in Churchill Square. Um, and that's what people knew it as. And when they tried to move Market Square and the market into another building, people protested by not attending. So there was like clearly a history there. Uh, but if we're going to go 100 years back, why not go 500 years back? These are traditional meeting grounds of many people who have been erased, who have been forgotten, who have been subjects of ongoing colonial violence. Like, we don't own this land. I don't own this land. Um, the city certainly doesn't own this land. Uh you know, give it back. Let the people who are the descendants of of those original land keepers decide, just like we did with the wards. Yeah, you know, and to those people, you know, who keep commenting, oh, you know, so you threw some paint on a statue, what have you accomplished? Well, we've accomplished exactly this, is this conversation and, and, and actually bringing some light and discussion and some meaningful dialogue. And hopefully at the end, we make the right decision uh, and mothball the statue uh, but that is what it accomplishes. Um, you know, it isn't about the paint, which was, you know, removed the same day within hours, um, which I think, you know, that's that's a disservice as well, because we could have continued that dialogue. But these kinds of the, these conversations need to happen and we need to understand, you know, what the effect of these memorials have on the people that were oppressed and, and uh, marginalized during that time and, and, and the people that live today. I think that's a fantastic place to leave it. Um, you know, just, just my last words on this is, yeah, direct action gets the goods. It's why we're having this conversation. And uh, it's not that hard to bring down a statue, apparently, uh, according to a popular mechanics article that I will be <laughs> linking to in the show notes. Um, Great. Wonderful. <laughs> uh, uh, thanks so much, Nisha and Najee, for coming on. Um, what's How can people follow along your work? How can people find you on the internet? Yeah, you can uh, go through my website like my haters do, nishapatel.ca, uh, or you can follow me on Instagram where I post photos of my loving fiance, myself, and my shows, um, and other work that I do at another Nisha. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Najib Jutt, N A J I B J U T T. I've done a little bit of writing, I'm often quoted in media on different political events. Um, so it's not hard to find me. Awesome. Yes. Thanks so much for you two for coming on. And for all the folks out there listening to the podcast, thanks for listening all the way to the end. There's a few things that you can do to uh, keep us going. One of which is rate, review, subscribe, however you found us, uh, you know, make sure we end up in your podcatcher of choice and uh, leaving reviews on Apple podcasts actually does really help. And uh, the ultimate way to keep helping us out is to become uh, one of our patrons join around the 500 other folks who make a small monthly contribution to this little independent media project. It's very easy. There's a link in the show notes. Uh, you can go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons. You can put in your credit card, five, 10, $15 a month. Uh, it really does go a long way to helping us out and helping keeping this project going. Also, if you have any notes or thoughts, comments, things you think I need to hear, things you think I screwed up on, I'm very easy to get a hold of. I am also on Twitter uh, far too much at, at Duncan Kinney, and you can reach me by email at duncank at progressalberta.ca. Thanks again to Nisha and Najib for coming on. Thanks to Cosmic Family Communist for our amazing theme. Thank you for listening, and goodbye.